0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 5th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The U.S. House's new speaker, Paul Ryan, has yet to show that he's someone who would or could effectively restrain the congressional penchant for spending ever more money. Jonathan Bidlack with the Coalition to Reduce Spending discusses the state of Congress and the trade-offs that Congress critters won't make. What should fiscal conservatives expect from Speaker
1: Paul Ryan? Really hard to say. Uh, he's, he's definitely, I think, as good as anyone when it comes to the ideology and the need for reforming entitlement spending. Uh, perhaps not as good as, as many when it comes to reforming Pentagon spending. He's made some comments recently talking about how he's in favor of a larger navy and, and wanting the Pentagon to spend more in terms of what the outcomes will be for uh speaker Ryan you know that's something that ideology only tells you so much you know he may be better on the issue than than many others but you have to be willing to go and twist those arms when you need to you need to be a good negotiator and and know when to take the compromise and know when to push harder and that's something that ideology doesn't tell you and so we haven't really seen Paul Ryan in that position yet and so it's really tough to say whether or not fiscal conservatives are going to get a better deal
0: than they did with with Speaker Boehner. Is there any suspicion or uh, hope that Congress may choose to adopt some sort of zero baseline budgeting in the near <laughs> t- near term?
1: That might be a little bit uh, a little more aggressive. Uh, you know, I think there if, are for those not
0: familiar. Explain what that
1: is. Yeah, the basic idea, and this goes back to the 1974 Budget Act, is that. Uh, you know it, it, when you and I talk about cutting our household spending it 's pretty straightforward if we if we spent you know one hundred dollars last year and we spend uh, ninety nine this year well that ends up being a cut and if we spend one hundred and one dollars this year then then we 've increased our spending. Uh, it, Congress sort of operates under the idea that we need to think about the government uh, goods and services in sort of consistent terms, and so if we provided x uh, x value in year one then we also need to provide x value in year two but it might actually be more expensive in year two because we have more people that are receiving those benefits or the cost of those programs has gone up due to inflation so uh, the CBO the Congressional Budget Office essentially every year calculates a baseline which says you know how much more uh, how much more spending do we need to provide the same level of, of goods and services as before and so the problem with that is that the the sort of discussion that occurs in D.C. has changed a little bit, where now any cut from that baseline, even if you're still spending more than you spent in the previous year, is talked about as a cut in spending. And so you could almost argue that that uh, baseline budgeting or the existence of baseline budgeting, in a sense, bakes spending increases into the into the cake because now the the conversation that everyone's having is is you know well where should spending be relative to this sort of constantly increasing
0: baseline, which leads to when Congress people talk about spending cuts they're often not referring to spending cuts in any normal sense.
1: Sure. When the debate over sequestration occurred a couple of years ago, right, and we were sort of talking about these draconian cuts to the Pentagon and these draconian cuts to to, uh, non-defense discretionary programs, they weren't actually cuts relative to the previous fiscal year. They were just cuts relative to that increasing baseline, and so it was a little bit disingenuous on the part of
0: uh, elected officials who who were arguing otherwise. Now, with respect to the Pentagon specifically, should we expect that? Uh, should we expect budget caps of any kind to prevail?
1: You know, it's tough. I, I think uh, the short answer is that you know, any budget any budget cap is is better than no budget cap. And so there's sort of this debate I think that goes on, in sort of the the wonky circles of DC about whether or not it's really a good idea to advocate for budget caps, for the reason that they're so often broken. Um, I think that you know clearly. Uh, again, we've seen you know multiple instances now of sort of breaking the budget caps that have been set. So most the most recent budget deal that was passed last week. Uh, you go back to Ryan Murray, the adjustments to the budget caps. You know back a couple of years ago. So, uh, but that said, the caps themselves do create, I think, sort of an expectation of where spending should be, and they do lay out a, 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 you know a, a legal framework in essence that that um, people try to abide by, or at least many people try to abide by. So. Um, you know, do I do I think we're going to blow through those caps again? Sure, because there's sort of there there are Democrats who want to spend more on on discretionary programs, and there are uh, a large chunk of Republicans
0: who who want to spend more on the Pentagon. You know, but whether- that's not always the case, right? I mean, when you're talking about um, as we spoke before we started recording, it's traditionally thought that the right supports more spending on the Pentagon, the left supports more spending on social programs and non-defense discretionary spending. but. They broadly agree to spend more on both of those things.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you look at the NDAA vote, which is just handed down, right the vast majority of Democrats were voting in favor of the NDAA um, and and you know and the vast majority of Republicans ultimately end up supporting increased spending on on uh, non-defense programs as well. And we can sort of have the discussion about you know why that occurs. I mean I think some of it is just people don't know and, and they sort of go along with the status quo and some of it is that they actually support the, that spending. Uh, but the reality is, you're right, that you know, outside of sort of the, um, the progressive contingent on the Democratic side that is you know willing to go and, and advocate for, for, I would argue, more reasonable Pentagon spending, and, and outside of the, the more libertarian wing of the Republican party, uh, you don't get a whole lot of deviation from that norm most of the, most of the time.
0: The compromise, in essence, is... Reversed from a somewhat fiscally conservative perspective,
1: it's it's you vote for my spending and I'll vote for yours, rather than let's come to the table, you know, abide by actual uh, re- a reasonable budgeting process and and sort of think of spending in terms of trade-offs. So
0: we're, we're at the end of the John Boehner era in Congress, the last few years, when it with respect to spending. Frankly, aren't all that bad. No, they're not. I mean, I you know
1: I uh, I will admit that I, I do probably fall in the camp that, that thinks that that Speaker Boehner will be viewed more positively than sort of the the, the current wisdom uh, you know views him as. If you look at the hand he was dealt, it was pretty tough, right? He was he was the the head of the House. The House was the only Republican portion of government. That the Democrats controlled the Senate. The uh, President Obama was a Democrat, obviously, and and you know we did get the Budget Control Act coming out of that, which you know we can again. have have that that debate about exactly how important the Budget Control Act was at, at restraining spending, but if you look at the the overall spending record in the last couple of years after sort of TARP and the and the bailouts and what have you, it has stabilized. And so, to the degree that you give you know credit to that to that. Uh, you know, flattening of of spending to the Budget Control Act. I think you have to give that credit as well to John Boehner, who was the person who um, who not only was responsible for for pushing the Budget Control Act through and getting the president to agree to it, uh, but he also sort of along the way was was a voice advocating for holding to the the caps contained within the Budget Control Act. And you know whether that was because he ideologically agreed with it, uh, or whether or not he sort of saw it was a personal motivation and he saw it as a legacy. The reality is he he was pretty good. At holding us to those caps, uh, you know, recent transgressions aside, of course, and so, um, you know, in, in terms of how he'll be viewed down the road, I think from the standpoint of a fiscal conservative, you do have to look at the situation, the broader you know, political uh, sphere that that the Budget Control Act was passed in, and and recognize that it was a pretty good deal for fiscal conservatives, and perhaps the best that we
0: ultimately could have gotten. Election years aren't always bad for some sort of substantial reform. The United States sits on $18 trillion in debt. Is it even possible that in the last year of the Obama Administration, we might see some kind of spending reform.
1: Now that I might actually be uh, be skeptical of. I think there are other other priorities that are that do have a spending component, um, but but you know they're not. This is not going to be the primary issue for the reason that we talked about earlier, which is that you know Republicans kind of don't want to touch it as much as Democrats don't when it comes to any sort of specifics. So I, I don't really see that coming. But you know things like criminal justice reform, for example. I mean there, there are there is savings billions come, of dollars. Sure, that's right. So there are there are little things like that that I think could be very important. But uh, in terms of seeing you know, much more significant spending reforms, probably not. That said, you know, while I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the most recent budget deal, there are a couple of, a couple of provisions in there that, that should be encouraging signs, I guess, for fiscal conservatives. There, have, there are some reforms and um, extensions of pilot programs and whatnot um, to reduce spending in the Social Security Disability Insurance Program, uh, which is something that, as you and I'm sure most of your listeners know, uh, is a program that's, that's slated to go bankrupt next next year. And so, that's at least encouraging. Um, and so, there are, you know, these little things, there are some reforms to crop insurance, for example, uh, which which could, the CBO scored, I think, at a savings of $3 billion. So, um, you know, you take these little things that you can get, even if the sort of broader picture is, is probably not as rosy.
0: Let's talk about more broadly. Um, Sweden, Norway, and Switzerland sure. faced a crisis of entitlements. The United States has not yet faced its... Existing uh, crisis in entitlements. Why did Switzerland and Sweden? How were they able to deal with that?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I think in the United States we have this. At least a lot of conservatives and libertarians have this have this view that that you know they're sort of all big government status. And the reality is that uh, Sweden actually in the mid '90s faced an entitlement crisis. And and unlike their their neighbor to the west, Norway, they didn't sit on massive amounts of oil reserves. And so they had to fundamentally look at what they were spending. And they realized that they're very generous. Uh, you know, uh, entitlement state or welfare state was not sustainable, and so they imposed tax and expenditure limits uh, that basically limited what they could spend as a function of of tax revenue. And they said, if our you know if our deficits go above a certain level or our debt goes above a certain level, we've got to ratchet that spending back. and And their debt to GDP has come down as a result. And you see the same thing in Switzerland, for example, which has that reputation of being fiscally conservative. And part of the reason why is because they have very stringent restrictions on how much able to spend uh, in fact they don't even neither of these countries have a debt limit process like in the United States they could theoretically borrow as much as they want but of course there's no need to borrow that amount of money because they're restricting their spending and so I think when we think about long term what needs to happen in the United States it's not just as simple as let's elect a few new people we have to kind of think about these more fundamental rules changes and and you know a, a, a tax and expenditure limit along these lines you know is probably what we need there's a really great chart that some scholars put together recently that shows debt-to-GDP ratios of a lot of these countries. And when you get to the, the mid-2000s, all of a sudden you see the United States take off and most of the EU take off. And then you have Sweden and Switzerland not even remaining flat, actually going down as a debt as a share of GDP. And the reason is, again, because they have these, these more, more
0: stringent rules than we have here. Trevor Burrus If the $18 trillion in debt that the U.S. is sitting on, not to mention the sort of off-the-books debt of obligations that have been promised to various uh, groups of people. If that were a credit card balance, the United States would not even be making minimum payments on that.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think there's, you know, in a sense, you have to pay the interest on that on that debt, and so we are we are able to pay that interest, and that's not. Uh, but the balance um, isn't
0: declining even in no, a, that's, even in that tiny, that, that's tiny a, way.
1: No, that's exactly right, and I think from the standpoint of spending, you know, when when libertarians and fiscal conservatives think about the spending issue, there's sort of two broad reasons for concern. One is what you're pointing at, pointing to, which is the the sort of the concern about debt and t- continuing to take on debt and ultimately having to pay that back at some point. And, and you know, whether or not we're, we'll even be able to do so is an open question. The other thing is that spending itself is often very inefficient. That even if our budgets were totally balanced, it's not even clear that we would want government to be doing many of the things that they're actually doing. You know, and so one of the things that we advocate for at the Coalition to Reduce Spending is to try to have a consistent framework across all government programs to basically say, you know, what are we spending and what are we getting in return, and that's a very separate question from whether or not you have, you know, this this credit card debt. Um, and so I think that there's uh, um, there's just a lot of there 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 are many many reasons to reduce spending, and unfortunately, right now the incentives that exist for elected officials aren't necessarily skewed in the way that you and I and your listeners might want them to be.
0: Now, in OMB conducts these kinds of studies of the programs that various federal agencies have. I'm thinking of agencies like the DEA, where OMB has conducted studies of their various programs and simply concluded results not demonstrated. And so th- so th- this kind of stuff goes on, but it's not Taken all that seriously in Congress?
1: Yeah, you know one of my uh, one of the things that Tom Coburn used to always point out, and I always think is one of the best examples is just duplication across government departments. You know, there's tens of billions of dollars of duplicated programs, and. Even trying to get rid of those is so, is so difficult sometimes. And You would think that you, know, you could get support from, from across the political aisle to get rid of du- you know, duplicative spending, but it's, uh, as you say, it's, uh, oftentimes there's a lot of reports and the facts are out there. It's not a problem of not having the facts, I think. It's a matter of, of being willing to act on it, having the courage to act on it, and kind of having the, the swift kick in the behind to, to act on it. And, and the, Unfortunately, the status quo doesn't really, uh, doesn't really promote you know, reduced spending for
0: that reason. Jonathan Bidlack is president of the Coalition to Reduce Spending. Follow federal spending and the ways to cut it at downsizinggovernment.org and cato.org.